0: Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, just how do banks influence the economy and are we all paying for their risk-taking? We know, of course, that they take risks because they know we're going to bail them out if they get into trouble. How can we manage the role of banks in a way that is not going to penalise us all? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, just how much of what goes wrong in the economy is down to the behaviour of banks? This is a favourite subject for Steve Keen. And how much of that uh, behaviour is because they don't fully take account of risk? Now, of course, Steve, we bailed them out during the financial crisis. So why wouldn't they just behave the same way again?
1: Largely because they live on extremely short-term stimuli. I mean, this is the the, the whole three months focus. You know, the shareholder shareholder value obsession we have today and the three-monthly reporting cycle that people are on, uh, there's an enormous stimulus to... Uh, in corporations to push the share price up as much as they can Mm. and in banks to push out as much debt as they possibly can because they they get rewarded by the extent to which they increase the revenue
0: base of the banks and the revenue base is fundamentally the amount of debt they've created right but my point is that any sensible organization would say that's all fine we want to uh, make sure we've got short-term gain but we you know we need to measure our risk and obviously banks do Look a risk, but my point is, if we uh, if we if we've bailed them out in the past, then they will take bigger risks than they would otherwise.
1: Well, that's what they've done. I mean, the, the classic instance of that was, of course, the Greenspan put. We tend to forget uh, the that Greenspan was actually made Federal Reserve Chairman just before the eighty seven stock market crash. And in the in eighty seven, the stock market, like I know the Australian data better than I know the American, but it's actually more extreme, but still comparable. The Amer- Australian stock market rose by eighty percent. Between January and October of 1987. Mm. Now, when it crashed by 25 percent on one day, uh, then Greenspan's response was to say, "We're going to make sure nobody goes bankrupt." Now, of course, they call that the Greenspan put, and that meant you knew if you if you if you bail, if you risk the the, the business on uh, a speculative position, uh, then a speculative position worked out, you won, and if it didn't. You got rescued by Greenspan, and you still won. Right.
0: So we should so have just let them go yeah. bank. if they're going to. If you've if you've speculated on something that's going up eighty percent and it's going to lose twenty five percent, then you're a fool. Surely we should let you fail. Yeah.
1: Well, that's then. That's what used to happen because banking used to be an unlimited liability operation. And one argument I've seen in terms of restraining the extent to which banks get involved in reckless lending is to say, let's go back to the days when banking was an unlimited liability. Uh, industry. So at the moment, if you, you, and I set up a company for one pound in the UK, which is quite feasible, and we ended up being a million dollars in in debt because the venture didn't work, uh, we would then pay one pound and a million uh, and be out and be out of trouble. And that's. Um, mm. That 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 doesn't matter that much when you've got small operations which can't create their own money like you and me because we'll never get to a million dollars worth in the first place. But a bank can create that million by lending, and this is the uh, the fact that it's it, it, it's a it's a business once you've got a banking license. Uh, what you have is a license to lever up the equity you've got into more assets which generate you an income flow. And if you have a if you if you start with uh, say a uh, uh, hundred million. Of, of money in in the banking sector, that gives you a license to create. If you were happy with a ten to one gearing ratio, a billion dollars worth of money, which you charge interest on, uh, and if you charge like five percent, you're getting fifty million out of that. That's a fifty percent rate of return. So that's the great temptation of banking. That the 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 more risk you take in that sense. Uh, the, the more you lever up your equity base, the more money you make, and everything's fine until people can't repay the debt you've 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 taken out, uh, which wouldn't matter if you. Um, if you had an unlimited liability because that you'd be aware of it. But if you've got a three-month reporting cycle and you can get bailed out and get a golden handshake, why not pump up the volume? And that's what you see banks doing during bubbles these days.
0: As an, as an individual. But, uh, but, of course, banks, looking at that the other way, banks do say, well, it's too big a risk to give these guys a million dollars. But if they want to buy a house for a million, that's, that's fine because we get a house at the end of the day we can call on.
1: And that's what to do to the whole hassle of collateralized lending. Because mm-hmm. again, I've accompanied through a very personal illustration of this very recently. Because what banks should do, and this is Sean Pater's vision of what banks do do, is that banks should be effectively venture capitalists. Yeah. They should be assessing uh, investment proposals, working out which ones look like they're more viable, funding those. They'll get some wrong and some right. And out of the ones they get right, they get a capital gain. Uh, other ones that fail they lose. Now in fact they don't get a capital gain because when you when you lend money as a bank to an operation, you get a, a lien over the ca- cash flow of the business. Um, and if you are just relying simply upon the cash flow, you're going to get creamed. Uh, because, like you know, seven out of ten are going to fail. You're not going. You're not going to get your interest income back on the three that do. You lose your principal for the seven that fail. So
0: there's a strong. The numbers don't stack up exactly because because the, yeah. the very worst you're going to get out of the housing market is that you bought on a on a high and maybe the housing market falls twenty percent, which is very irregular. Uh, and the the chances that you bought on the high are, are pretty low anyway. When you you take the whole portfolio of uh, of housing investment, so it's, it's yeah. not surprising banks are making all the money out of this.
1: Yeah, well, that's why they go for collateralized loans because, as mm. they say, if the business fails, they get the collateral. And uh, and that is an encouragement, again, to irresponsibility and, and also encouragement to lend on assets which actually inflates the price of assets so you get a positive feedback loop coming out of the lending. So what then when they look at risk and this this is why they they miss it completely. They look at individual risk. They look at uh, uh is your business viable compared to another? Are your house prices rising as fast as another region, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they base this on the you know the the probability of you going bust as, as an individual isolated element in a system. The trouble is you're not isolated and the the borrowing of money drives up the prices of the assets you have and also drives up demand in the economy. So you get a self-fulfilling loop. So what is going on is while they're assessing individual risk, they're not looking at systemic, and the systemic risk is what drives you into these debt bubbles and then asset price bubbles followed by asset price
0: collapses. So governments do step in, don't they, and central banks as well, in terms of uh, regulating banks so they, for example, make compulsory payments to cover failing banks and that seems like a, a sensible step I mean it's been, it's been tried and wound back a little bit I think the EU is trying to push ahead with it more now I'm not quite sure how Germans will feel about helping failing German uh, Italian banks but uh, but you know that's the intention but but maybe uh, I mean they need to be they need to differentiate don't they in, in terms of where the risk is lying as you're saying collateralized loans are very different to to uh, uh speculative investments so should should we for example be saying well okay let's if the government is going to step in here surely they should be saying well okay let's somehow reward the banks that are making let's let's balance those figures out so it becomes a more calculated decision between collateralized lending and uh, and investing in businesses <laughs> let's 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 provide some sort of uh, security for banks making investment in in businesses and you're on your own when it comes to housing for example
1: that's possible. I mean, one thing that Richard Vega suggested is that you should give banks a longer period to write debt off, because one of the reasons that banks fail uh, is that when they, when they get bankrupt, uh, when, they, when, they, when their assets collapse in value and their liabilities remain the same, there's suddenly a negative, uh, negative territory. They have to unwind they're non-performing assets, but they're required to write them off in one go. When you write them off, me, you might be still in positive equity before you do it. When you do the write-off, you're in negative equity and you go bankrupt. So, he wants to have rules that enable banks to spend a longer time uh, paying down their, their bad debts rather than having to do it all at once. Uh, but what we, what we have to get our heads around is that it's not episodic risk that matters in the banking sector or in a capitalist economy in general. It's systemic risk. and That requires a capacity to think in a non-equilibrium way because if you think in an equilibrium way, there is no systemic risk. You're not very far from equilibrium. You're going to get back there again. That, unfortunately, is the thinking that dominates regulators these days, and that's why this crisis always takes them by surprise. So
0: what's the system? Just the the, the mentality of the banking industry that's that's driving that system?
1: It's the feedback that occurs between the level of government, of bank lending, and the level of economic activity, and then the valuation of assets. So if you, have, if you have the world that economists, mainstream economists, think they live in, uh, which is where banks are just intermediaries, then the lending operation adds nothing to aggregate demand. It just distributes risk between different parties in the economy. And you can have an enormous increase in debt with no change in GDP, an enormous fall in debt with no change in GDP. They're, they're irrelevant because credit doesn't create additional demand. When credit does create additional demand, then you get systemic risk turning up as well. And that's what's left out of the calculations of risk these days.
0: So how did Italy, the Italian banking sector, get itself into – and Italy is interesting because we can look at the the role of the government there as well. But let's just look at – even before the government started to say, well, we're we're going to uh, borrow more than the EU wants us to, Italian banks were in problems because they had a lot of non-performing loans. Uh, So how did they get into, into that situation?
1: Well, actually, they pretty much dates from the euro. If you look at the level of uh, of um, Italian um, private sector debt back in 1962 or 63, there was, it was about fifty. It was about just over 50 percent of GDP in 1985, just over 50 percent of GDP in 1998, about 70 percent of GDP. Right after the euro formed, it just tri- doubled. Mm. Went from 150. To about 100, 100, about from 50 to about 130 percent of GDP. So that increase in debt was really making up for the fact that the euro had put a a kibosh on government money creation. So whereas you had the lira, when 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 the lira existed, government debt uh, was quite substantial, and the change in government debt was quite large. That itself was creating money in the economy, which was then used you know, it was the turnover of money that gave you demand in the economy as soon as that was turned off uh, by the formation of the euro bang you had a you had a effectively like began looking at the figures here uh, and, and when the euro was formed private debt in italy was about 65 about 70% of gdp it boomed up to when the crisis began to 130% so mm. really in some ways the banks were compensating for the lack of money creation by the
0: government Right, and now they're getting penalised for it because, of course, you know the uh, the government now wants to spend more. They're breaking the EU's budgetary rules, uh, so investors are getting out of Italian bonds. Uh, so there's a big drop in the value of those bonds. The banks hold a lot of those uh, a lot of those bonds, so so they suffer. Uh, perhaps not through their own fault, except for having bought too many government bonds, uh, and that flows onto the economy.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it's a very it's a dangerous uh, recipe to go through because. What you're doing is by, by turning off the government money creation, you're forcing people to rely upon private money creation. But in fact, the private sector is looking at the decreased level of demand thinking we've got to liquidate rather than uh, mm. uh, rather than borrow more money. So you get a double whammy. Government spending goes down and the private sector goes down as well. What compensates in that case is GDP collapses.
0: So this is why governments get involved in bailing out banks because banks get into trouble. It's the economy that suffers. They uh, they restrict ca- uh, credit. Spending goes down. Investment goes down. Uh, this is precisely why banks are bailed out, and that is why banks, therefore, say, well, okay, we can take some risks because we're too, you know it gets back to the whole too-big-to-fail argument, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, that's right. And, and how do actually- you get
0: over that? How do we stop yep. that happening, That that vicious cycle? How do we stop it?
1: Well, one one way, and this is the extreme way, would be to reintroduce uh, unlimited liability on bank lending and to enforce it. Now, of course, the odds of that are pretty much zero. But when you look back, at say, at uh, the UK, for example, which I think is probably the best example of a, of a long-running um, financial, financial system uh, in a major capitalist economy – when you had banking as unlimited liability and when you had banks not allowed to lend for housing, the level of private debt in the UK never exceeded 73% of GDP. It bounced between about 50% and 73% from day 1880 to 1980. As soon as it was deregulated in 82, uh, the banking sector was allowed to lend to housing. It went from 55% of GDP through Maggie and through Tony to 195% of GDP. So
0: who was lending for housing before? It's all building societies.
1: All building societies. And with building societies, you do have the classic loanable funds story because when you put money in a building society you lose immediate access to it you don't have a at-call deposit account you can pull the money out of the money that's put into a a bank account somewhere which is owned by the building society and you've got to go through quite a rigmarole to take your money out and at the same time when you put your money in a building society it's often because you want to buy a housing loan at a later point so you're trying to build up a record of being a depositor Um, and therefore with that record of it being a depositor bang you'll get a bank loan at a later stage so there's much more conservatism uh in in the building society system right and what you get is a high high turnover of money coming out of which enables you to build those houses
0: so okay so that that fixes that side of it so i might be a bit slow on this take us back to the situation then before banks were uh loaning for housing how was that creating a more stable situation well, I, well essentially-
1: if you if you if you, were, um, if you wanted to buy a house at some point uh, then you you would want one of your acts to, would to do that would be to put your money in the building society which means of course in the building society you don't have access to that money so you spend less rapidly uh, with that money but you're trying to build up a, a bank balance in the credit credit uh, union so that you can go along and apply to the credit union with a deposit in there and a record of saving and then they'll lend you the money which you then go out and rapidly spend to, to build a property. So what you get is the money, um, you, you, you don't get any money being created by the lending. You get money being reallocated from people who've been saving to those who want to spend it on, on building a house. Right. So there's no money creation and you don't get a positive feedback between the amount of household debt that exists and house prices. As soon as you let banks into the equation, you get positive feedback. So the increasing debt drives up the house prices.
0: Right. But you would be, while you were saving, you'd be putting that money in the bank. But that would only be up to whatever it is 10% of the value of the house.
1: Well, actually back in those days it used to be 30%. 30% yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's, so you didn't get a positive feedback loop. And what we've got in banking is a whole set of positive feedback loops that lead to instability and breakdown. And the way to actually get risk out of the system is not to talk about, you know, risk ratings and, and, and stress tests and stuff like that. It's to remove those positive feedbacks. And by far the most important one is between new mortgage debt and the house and the house price level.
0: So before uh, uh, banks were able to to loan for housing, all their investment was in, in in business investments.
1: Yeah, and this is when you look at where the the whole approach of endogenous money, which is the approach to how banks operate, that I'm I'm continuing on. Uh, the the grandfather of this whole idea was a guy called Basil Moore, who was a Canadian. Economist. And Basil, when he did his analysis, what he called the endogenous money supply, was taking on the economic vision that the money supply is controlled by the government, the standard Milton Friedman fantasy that um, the government has a, creates a certain level of reserves, uh, sets a reserve ratio, and that determines lending. That implied that the money supply is completely under the government's control. So if there was a slump, it was due to the government. If there was a boom, it was due to the government. Basil pointed out this is nonsense, that ba- banks actually uh, – ha- there's there's no no, no um, concept of a, of a stock of money separate from the demand for money. If a bank lends you money, it creates – the, the demand for money creates the additional money as well because the bank fulfills it. So he had this idea of what he called the horizontal money supply. Now that, uh, when he gave those examples, uh, you know, you're doing he did mathematical analysis for it and empirical work as well. But his example of a classic uh, bank loan was a line of credit. Now a line of credit. Um, Was you know like a a large corporation might approach a a consortium of banks and get a line of credit of a billion dollars, which which would have a a outstanding level of say a hundred million dollars, and then if it was hit by wage demands uh, during a booming economy or by demand for. Uh, high prices for oil during the OPEC period, they would simply access the line of credit from say 100 billion to 300 billion, and they'd be able to fulfil that demand for higher wages or pay the higher costs of oil without they need to go and cap in hand asking for a loan. Now, lines of credit virtually don't exist anymore because they weren't profitable enough for the banks. Mm-hmm. They're happy to happy to defend uh, housing, lend housing loans and stuff like that. So banks have made lines of credit prohibitively prohibitively expensive and instead companies that need that short-term money to pay wage boosts and so on have started what they call the commercial um, paper market where they issue very, very short-term bonds like so might have a, a duration of 90 days and this the sale of and, and those 90-day bonds, the money coming out of it is how they pay wages and that's why the financial crisis was such a a sudden shock back in 2008. In that sense, the onset was more severe than the Great Depression. When Lehman Brothers failed, that destroyed the market for commercial paper. And if there hadn't been a rescue within, then within a couple of weeks, American corporations wouldn't have had money to pay wages. And then we would have had something much worse than the Great Depression. So... Um, the 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 behavior of banks has changed away from what we'd want them to do, which is providing working capital for corporations, to simply financing asset bubbles.
0: But there would be a cost associated with all of that, with 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 giving loans in that line of credit, because the because the element of risk involved in
1: it. Not when you're talking companies like General Motors, back when it was actually was a company rather than a financial a speculative shell, um, you had a fairly reliable cash flow coming in there. Mm. So it's, it's back in the days of the uh, – what's the old classic movie about uh, it's a beautiful world, a um, uh, beautiful life? The, um
0: you keep on assuming I'm the same age as you, Steve. You've got to stop doing that.
1: Sorry about that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's one of my parents' favourite movies. Even worse, <laughs> uh, but that uh, the J- James Jim Jimmy not Jim not Jamie Jimmy, Cat- Jimmy
0: Jimmy Stewart Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, C- playing the yeah. classic bank oh, mate. There you are. I'm showing age. Yeah. Definitely showing age. maybe you know, I'm the, the same know, age as you. <laughs>
1: there you go. There you go. You, you watch the same movies late at night with your wife. There you go. um well, I won't go into that any further, um, but yeah, that, 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 was the, that was the banking manager providing working capital to a, to, a, to a town whose people, businesses he knew well, and that was the, the classic vision of banking, which we need to return to, uh, where banks aren't the major profit center of the economy; it's the corporations that are, and the banks mm-hmm. play a service, servant, a service role rather than determining the whole damn game.
0: So governments make it worse, don't they? Because they try and uh, reduce risks uh, in in other ways. And uh, let's take the example of Telstra. So, um, you know, people were... And, and housing is another example as well. You know, people were encouraged to, uh, to, to invest in housing through, through various grants. But if we look at the sale of Telstra shares in Australia, uh, and, uh, you know, since that's happened... Telstra's received a lot of favourable deals simply because I think there was guilt on in the, from the government that mum and dads had been encouraged to invest in this company. And the share price started to go down quite markedly, despite the 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 government's uh, protestations. So, so then they start to get get involved, not just in the in the banking sector, but they start getting involved in the uh, in the commercial world as well, because of their you know the way that the way they've treated mums and dads. And that complicates the picture as well. I'm just wondering whether you know governments are getting too entwined in all of this.
1: I think they are. I mean, we, we, again, this is where your philosophy becomes a problem because what they've done is they've accepted uh, the neoliberal vision about what banking should be, about the nature of markets, and believe deregulate and things will work better. And uh, and the trouble is that deregulation makes sense to some extent for corporations sometimes. Um, but in case of banking, what it means is decide how much money you want to create. Well, hasn't that worked out well? So it, it's because they, the government's bought into the same neoliberal philosophy that me, neoclassical economics is generated by its equilibrium vision of money. Uh, that's where our problem is coming from. Uh, a, a better government might be able to be more independent of that, but at the same time, we then get the political influence. And if if, um, if financial corporations are the main ones you deal with, they're the main lobbyists you're confronting all the time, you'll make things better for the financial sector. So it, it's, it isn't just... Um, yeah, you know, government's not a benign force here at all, and um, and I would, I would, if we had governments which were dominated by the advice they're getting from the industrial sector, I'd be a lot happier than ones being dominated by advice they're getting from the financial sector.
0: Yeah, so if we take, in effect, take take housing loans back out of the banking sector, uh, just how many problems does that fix? And are there other issues that the government needs to do to try and manage risk in the economy? Or, or does that fix a lot of it?
1: I think so, it fixes a hell of a lot of it, but I, uh, in terms of getting the banks out of there and getting back to the days of building societies, you need to reverse engineer uh, the previous world, which I think it would be rather hard to do. Well, they've all got like,
0: shareholders, so you've you've got yeah. to pacify them. So you've got a big payout to go back to the way things were.
1: Yeah, and I think I'd, I would rather limit the. Uh, that's why my idea about uh, limiting the amount of money that banks can lend for housing to some multiple of the income. Uh, of the asset being purchased, rather than the income of the borrower, because that gives you a link between the cash flow, income flow out of an asset and its price. Whereas we get totally decoupled between the two with uh, with banks being able to do collateralized lending and supposedly basing the amount of their lending they're going to do on the income of the of the borrower. So, what 20%. sort of ratio? Uh, I, I've generally gone about ten to one. If you because if you look at the level of um, of rental income, like my property that I'm, I'm uh, Renting in Amsterdam right now is costing me roughly two thousand, let's say twenty five, a bit less than twenty five thousand euro uh, a year. That would imply the maximum anybody can borrow to buy would be say two hundred and fifty thousand euro. Mm-hmm. Now this property, would which was always, go which was always that. the
0: rule of thumb number, wasn't it? It was like yeah, ten, 10 times one. ten exactly. When, when did that all go wrong? With the uh, uh, was that back from building society days? When did we start to see that discrepancy emerge?
1: Uh, about the 1970s. And again, this is when mm. we got the, the neoliberal philosophy taking over in Milton Friedman. And this vision, We call, Friedman called this stuff monetarism, which is total crap, because he actually had a, fan, a mythical idea of how money is created, which completely absolved the role of the private banking sector, but we implemented his policies nonetheless. And that's what liberated the banking sector to become the beast it is today.
0: All right. Very good. Okay. Well, we do seem to come back to the same conclusion a lot of, a lot of the time on this podcast. Don't we? We start at a different position. We always end up, uh, in this, in the same place, which, uh, you know, hopefully means we're right on this. Uh, good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. No, bye. And uh, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, migration. Well, this is a hot topic, isn't it, given Brexit is pulling Britain apart right now, politically and socially. Uh, but what is the impact of migration on countries like the UK or countries around the world? Uh, obviously, Donald Trump wants to build a wall to try and cut it off at the pass. Uh, but is migration a good thing? And how do we control it? We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then.